Our text this morning is from Galatians chapter 5, verses 7 through 15. And I would invite you to stand with me as we hear God's Word. Hear now the Word of the Lord that is holy, sufficient, and true. Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Let us pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word. And we pray, O Lord, that you would guide us in it. That you would bring its truth to bear upon our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I remember the first time I saw a large building get detonated. A condemned building, knocked down to the ground by dynamite. And what was almost as amazing to me as the noise and the smoke and the sound was the fact that it looked like a building that people should be living in, working in. It looked fine from a distance. But, of course, it was condemned because the insides were rotten and that had taken its toll upon the building. This sort of thing happens not just with buildings. This sort of thing can happen even with people. You know, one of the most famous incidents in all of literature is a story by the name of the Iliad. And you know the story. The Greeks surround the city of Troy and they fight for ten years. They attack it over and over and over again. And they're only successful when they can get some people inside. And the people that are inside open up the gates and open up for destruction. But this isn't just myth. A similar sort of thing happened near the end of World War II. There was great confusion and the Germans almost won a very significant battle, the Battle of the Bulge, in part because they had taken an entire troop of men who had studied abroad in America and put American uniforms on them and sent them out to switch road signs and to point people in the wrong direction and to lay ambushes. And it wasn't just these few men that were the problem, no. As soon as word got out that this was true, no American trusted another American. And instead of helping each other, the first thing that came up was distrust, potential conflict. Well, this sort of thing happens in the church as well. We have attacks not just from without, 
but from within. And oftentimes, attacks from the outside cause greater problems on the inside and lead to grave difficulties. And that's one of the things that's happening here in Galatia. As we've been looking at this church for some time now, Paul is now describing for them the trouble that has come. And it's trouble from the outside, and it's also trouble from the inside. And so we're going to look at these two things this morning and see the hard words that Paul has for the troublemakers. Now, I want you to remember, you can look down at your outline, there are two sorts of troublemakers. There's trouble from the outside, but there's also trouble from the inside. And Paul has hard words for both of them. They might seem a little harder in one instance than the other, but I think Paul has hard words not only for the Judaizers, but also for us as we would seek to minister in God's name. Well, let us look first then at the trouble that comes from the outside. It begins here in verse 7. Paul, pastor that he is, tells the Galatians, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. He begins by describing their previous state. You see, the Galatians had responded so well to the gospel at first. We looked at that in chapter 4, in verses 13 and 14. When Paul came, they received him as an angel. They received him as Christ Jesus himself because he was bringing the gospel. They were making such progress. But what Paul does here is he uses an athletic imagery that I think is very familiar to us. It's throughout the Bible, and as you may recall, it's already become one of my stock phrases with you all. I will talk to you consistently about the fact that ministry is not a sprint, but rather it is a marathon. And that means that it's not enough to start well out of the blocks. You've got to finish well as well. You see, you don't take a 50-yard dash man and put him in the 4,000 meters. It just doesn't work because he sprints out, but he doesn't have the perseverance. He doesn't have the energy to run that kind of race. And sometimes we have that trouble as well. The Galatians did. They were running the race, and they had started out so well. Their past responses to the gospel were so positive. But now they have difficulty. They've been hindered, and they've been hindered from obeying the truth. The word that Paul uses here for hindered actually follows on in his analogy of the race. You see, when when I describe foot race or track meet to you, you think of a large oval, right? Where people run around and they do so many laps. Not so in the land of Greece. A race would be more like the way kids run races. I'll race you to that wall and back. Except for it was a little bit more sophisticated. And you can imagine the difficulties in running that kind of race. Kids, you know what happens when you do that, right? You run to the wall, and what happens at the wall? There's a big, where everybody comes together and hits and trips and jostles. Well, because of that, in Greek races, rules were set up. But still, some unscrupulous types tried to use whatever advantage they could. They would cut in front of someone near the wall. They would stick out a foot a little too far and hope somebody would fall. They were doing things to their own advantage. 
that weren't a part of the way the race was supposed to be run. And this is what is happening. Paul says to them, who's cutting you off, Galatians? Who's getting in your way? Who's stopping you from running the race of faith the way you should be? Now, this is a real problem. Do you remember the story of Mary Decker, the famous American woman athlete, and how she was favored in the Olympic race? She was favored to win the gold. And she was running, and she was running well. But there was a young girl from South Africa. And she came just a little too close trying to run the race. And she tripped Mary. And Mary lost the race. She didn't even finish, let alone win gold. You see, sometimes it's that. Other times it's confusion. Some of you men that are older may remember the story of Jim Marshall. One of the best defensive linemen that Minnesota ever produced. But he's not usually known for that primarily. He's known because one time... There was a turnover, and he picked up the ball, and he raced, and he expected to see all kinds of cheers. There was only one problem. In his confusion, he ran the wrong way. And instead of touchdown, it was safety. You see, he had become confused, and he ran the wrong way. He didn't know what he was supposed to be doing. And this is what's happening to the Galatians. The Judaizers have come in. They have cut them off. They are confusing them. They are causing difficulties. And this difficulty means they're not able to obey the truth. This truth is the truth of the gospel. But notice how Paul says this. He says they should be obeying the truth. You see, teaching affects living. Because they were getting false teaching, they were being disobedient. You see, you can't just believe things and not have it affect your life. There is an unbreakable bond, one commentator says, between theological integrity and spiritual vitality. They go hand in hand. You cannot be spiritually vital and not care about what the Bible teaches. You're fooling yourself. On the the same level, you cannot... Think you know what the Bible truly teaches and not have it affect your life. It's impossible. These two things go hand in hand. And you see, the trouble that came from the outside that was hindering the truth, that was hindering the Galatians from knowing and understanding the gospel, was affecting the way they were living. And Paul says, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. The word that he uses for persuasion here. This is the only time it's used in the entire Bible. And it's not used very often, even outside of the Bible. Where it is used, though, it has this connotation. It's not just persuasion like, I might persuade you to come to my house for lunch. Or I might persuade you to buy a certain kind of car. It's a persuasion that's contrived. That's an art. It's a persuasion that is meant to conceal the truth more than let it shine forth. You see, this persuasion that they had was sales talk of the worst kind. It was a lack of reliability. It was all puff and no substance. And you see, that can happen to us, can't it? Fast words to us can make us certain about something that isn't really true. 
Sometimes it's because we're embarrassed to admit we don't know everything we ought to know. You go into the mechanics shop. And he says, well, you see, it's this kind of a a piece, and this goes in here and that. And if you're like me, you just sort of nod your head and go, I didn't even know that those things were in the car. Of course it would be that. Sure. Go ahead. Do what you need to do. I understand. That's a great issue. Right? Maybe, Maybe you know all about cars, but it's something else for you. You go in to buy a new appliance. You don't know anything about these particular things, but the salesman absolutely convinces you that you have to have X. And if you don't have X, the refrigerator is going to fall apart. And you, not in firm agreement. You're right. I've been looking for X for a long time. You see, this is the situation the Galatians are facing. This is a a contrived persuasion. And Paul says, let me tell you, this persuasion you've gotten is not from him who calls you. Now that language should ring in our ears a bit because Paul says that same thing, sort of thing, In verse 6 of chapter 1, he says, I'm astonished you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. You see, what Paul is saying in just a slightly roundabout way is, this teaching you've gotten, it's not from God. They may use the Bible, but it's not from God. And so then our immediate question would be, well, if it's not from God, who's it from? And I think the answer becomes evident. If this kind of teaching is not from God, then it would come from he who would seek to sow confusion. He who would seek to see a lie set in the place of the truth. He who would seek to see trouble come into the church from outside. It's from the devil himself. You see, what Paul's saying is, you know how I've been telling you that it's faith, not works? It's promise, not law? You see, if you're on the other side of that, you're listening to the devil. And you're going to be confused. And you're going to have trouble. This persuasion is not from God. This is how Satan comes after us. You see, oftentimes, we think of Satan attacking us in spectacular fashions. Like something out of a movie. We go home and plates start flying out of our cupboards. Or somehow we lose control of our car. Or huge, horrible things begin to happen to us. But really, Satan's best attacks are such that we don't even notice that he's attacking. He whispers in the ear of the believer. Did God really say that? Are you sure about that? You, You sure it's not like this? Are you sure that you don't need circumcision? Are you sure that promise really applies to you? You see, that is how Satan attacks us. And this attack that comes from the outside, then, hinders the truth through the work of Satan. But it does more than just hinder the truth. It also harms the church. Look where Paul goes from describing about an attack on the truth that comes from the devil, and he says, A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, but the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Paul says, this is hurting the church. The first thing is it's contaminating the church. He gives this proverb, really, we might say, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Those of you that make pizza, 
or those of you that make bread from scratch, know how you make dough to rise, right? You have to go and you have to get a bin of yeast about as big as this pulpit and dump it in there, don't you? No, what do you do? You take a pinch, right? So much so those little packages that come in, sometimes you don't even use the whole package. Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It's a saying that Paul uses. It's a proverb that's used here. It may sound familiar to you because it's also used in 1 Corinthians 5, 6. He says the exact same thing. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. We have a very similar sort of proverb. I can begin it and you can end it. One bad apple spoils the whole barrel, the whole bunch. Just takes one, doesn't it? Because the rot spreads. So it is with leaven here. Now, I want you to notice something. The attackers here, the troublers, were hindering the truth. And so by attacking the truth, it caused a ripple effect throughout the whole congregation, we might say. But Paul uses the exact same phrase in 1 Corinthians 5, and you remember what's going on there? He's talking about the sin that's going on with a son having an affair with his father's wife. It's not about doctrine there. It's about actions. You see, this principle applies both to teaching and to living. And that, again, shouldn't surprise us because these two things go together. Satan attacks both of them. Notice the link here between doctrine and life. And then Paul says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Paul says that this harming of the church is being done by someone that deserves condemnation. He uses very strong words. The word here for troubling, we might say it's troubling in the sense of confusing others. It's talking in such a fashion so that people don't know which way is up. Right? You've had someone do that to you before. They start talking, and by the time they're done, you're more confused than when they started. And you scratch your head. And it causes a problem, especially if it's being said to a group, because then someone says, well, I think he said blue. No, I'm sure he said red. Well, no, it's blue. And it's argument back and forth and fighting and bickering. It's sowing confusion. And what Paul says is, such a man, and he he uses a general term here, because he's talking about a group of people. He says, basically, anyone that does this, let me tell you, he pays the penalty. Now, the penalty here is judgment. It's actually, we might say, eternal judgment. The word here for penalty means judgment in the sense of condemnation. You see, Paul says to do such a thing shows that you are truly an enemy of God and that you will experience condemnation for trying to attack the church. Now, this is all sort of bad news, but notice what Paul does also in this verse. In the middle of this description, he expresses great confidence in the Galatians. He says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. And we might say, 
Paul, it's a little Pollyanna-ish, isn't it? You've just been going on for four and a half chapters about how bad this teaching is. You're just saying that they were running well, but they're not anymore. Earlier you said you thought they were bewitched. I mean, there's a lot of problems in this church. If this were a church plant, the mission board might seek to stop it and wipe the slate clean and start over again. And hope to start out on the right foot. How can you express this kind of confidence? It's actually a very personal confidence. Notice what he says. I have confidence. There's that pronoun again. How can Paul do this? Paul's saying this in very strong terms. It might be like this. I have a friend who's, who's often uh, given to ending a conversation with saying, You know, Fred... I don't care what everybody else says. You're a pretty good guy. He's taking a contrary position. And that's what Paul's doing. You know, contrary to what anyone else might think, I have confidence in you. And how can Paul do that? It comes from a few little words. He says, I have confidence in the Lord. You see, Paul's confidence is not in the brains of the Galatians or their ability to work hard. Or the weakness of their opponents. His confidence in this work is in the Lord God himself. You see, Paul is not focused on the circumstances. He is focused upon God. It's this reason that oftentimes when many theologians speak of the perseverance of the saints, you know that final P in tulip, it can also be called the perseverance of God. Because the saints persevere because of the work of God in their midst. This is similar to what Paul would say to the Philippians in chapter 1. That he has every confidence that he who began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's applicable to us as well. Do you lack confidence in your own life? Do you lack confidence in how the Lord would work in your family? Do you perhaps lack confidence in how the ministry of this church will go forward? It may be that even right now, you lack a lot of confidence about putting a building together and all that's involved. And the answer is, we can't do it. You can't do it. But we have confidence that the Lord will do it. We look to the Lord to spread this ministry. We look to the Lord to empower us to take the gospel out. We look to the Lord to heal our families. This is where the confidence comes from. Paul finishes here by describing, now thirdly, how God's people are harassed. This is the attack from outside. It's an attack that hinders the truth, that harms the church, and now here harasses God's people. He says, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Now, do you notice what Paul does here? It's actually a very effective technique. He says, now, if I still preach circumcision, and you might say to yourself, well, Paul, when do you preach circumcision? And everybody looks through and tries to find something here in the book of Galatians to find it. Look in another epistle. And the answer that Paul would say is, I did preach circumcision. I preached circumcision all the time. You know when that was? Before I went on the road to Damascus. 
when I hated the Lord Jesus Christ, when I hated his church, when I persecuted the church, that's when I preached circumcision. What, you'd want me still to preach circumcision? Do you want me still to be a persecutor? Do you want me still to hate you in the church? Do you want me to think Gentiles are dogs? Is that what you would like? He's pressing the point home here. He's saying the same attitude that fueled me as a persecutor of the church is what's fueling those who attack from outside. You see, Paul has proof of it. He shows them his back and he says, see these scars? He shows them his eyes from sleepless nights. He says, I'm being persecuted now. You know, if I preach circumcision, I would have no trouble in any of the cities I go into. I wouldn't be attacked by any of the Jewish mobs or synagogues. But I can't do that because of the gospel. And he says, these attackers are so violent and have been attacking the church. Let me tell you this. They should just go and emasculate themselves. They should finish the job. And there's an irony here. Because Deuteronomy 23 says, those who are emasculated can't go into the temple. You see, Paul's saying, you're going to be cut off from God's people. It's almost a play on words. He says, I would that they would just get out of the church and never come back. And show that they don't deserve to be in the church. Because they're attacking people I love. And he says, they're attacking the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, it's a scandal. But they're trying to wipe the scandal out. They're trying to make it appeal to Jews. They're trying to make it appeal to Romans. Who see the cross as a shameful death of a criminal. They're trying to appeal to Greeks and their minds. They don't want the scandal of the cross. This is the trouble from outside. The difficulty here is, though, that the trouble doesn't stay outside. It comes inside. And so what Paul then says in verse 13 is this. He says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. He says the trouble is you're you're self-destructing. This teaching that you're imbibing is deadly. And it's not just attacks from the outside, it comes from the inside. He says, you're called to freedom. But don't use your freedom as an excuse to do whatever you want. And Paul might say to himself, now I know there are some out there, there are some in this church that might say, you know, people here in Galatia aren't doing what they should be doing. Let's get out a heavy dose of the law and prescribe that. People aren't doing what they should be doing. We need to burden them down more with the law. Keep them in line. Put them in shackles. Don't let them run too far. You know, it's kind of like when you have a child that wanders around in the mall. You see these mothers with the harnesses that they go, the belt goes around the child's waist, and the belt will go around the mother's waist or in the mother's hand because she wants to keep track of him. Only wants to let him go so far. But you see, Paul says that we can't do that. That's the cause of the problem. He says the irony here is all you've been thinking about is the law. And there's been so much emphasis in the law. And look at you. You do whatever you want to do. You don't obey the law at all. You make a big show about the law, but look at your lives. You see, this is an irony here. 
We might expect a focus on the law to bring obedience, but it doesn't. Why? Because there's no power for obedience in the law. Paul says it comes from the Spirit. You see, it's this tendency to lay down rule after rule after rule after rule so that we can wall ourselves off from the Scripture, wall ourselves off from the Holy Spirit, never have anything that requires us to seek God and His Word. And the irony is that those who are most fundamental in the pejorative sense of the word oftentimes experience great amounts of license. You burden down people with the law and the minute you give them a spare second, they're doing all sorts of things because they have no power from the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, don't indulge this. Don't give an opportunity for the flesh. The word here for opportunity is like the word that's described for a base that an army would use from which to go out and conduct a campaign. It's a base of operations. It's as if he's saying, listen, don't give Satan a foothold to attack your freedom in Christ. That's what you're doing by living like this. Don't indulge in it. And this is further proof of the falseness of the doctrine that the Judaizers were teaching. It was producing sin. It was doing the devil's work. The trouble is not just from outside, it's welling up from inside as people are being destroyed by their own actions. But we know that sin doesn't stop there. If you've had any experience with sin, you know sin does not live on a short leash. Sin is not a good pet dog. It can't be kept in you. You might say to yourself, I'm going to keep this under wraps. I'm not going to let anyone know that I'm indulging in this sin. I could keep this to myself. And you could probably do a pretty good job of it. But you know what? There's going to come a moment when you're tired. Or when you're surprised. Or when you're frustrated. And it's going to well up out from you onto others. Like a big oil slick. And that's what happens. Because it doesn't just stay with them indulging the flesh. Look what happens here in verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another. Sounds like a good church meeting, doesn't it? Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. You see, bad doctrine leads to divisiveness as well. It's conflict in the church is a kind of spiritual suicide. They're biting, devouring one another. They're hurting themselves and others and their mission. Calvin puts it this way. I think it's very informative. He says, The disagreement of members within the church can lead to nothing else than the ruin and consumption of the whole body. How distressing, how mad is it that we who are members of the same body should be leagued together of our own accord for mutual destruction. You see, that's what Satan wants. He doesn't want us working together for the gospel. He wants us bickering over things. He wants us bickering over the color of the carpet. He does. He wants us bickering over the day on which we do this or the day on which we do that. He wants us bickering over the number of elders or deacons we should have. He wants us bickering over who could be the Sunday school teacher. He wants us bickering over what 
portion of the Bible we read from. He doesn't care. He just wants us at each other's throats. Because that's where he is successful. Now, notice the nature of this conflict. They're biting. They're devouring. It's like a pack of wild animals. Well, what's the solution to this? There's attacks from outside. There's attacks from within. Sin is welling up in the Galatians. They're attacking and devouring one another. And Paul says in verse 14, in a sense, there's a real simple solution. It's love. And that actually takes into account the true purpose and meaning of the law. He says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, do you notice? It's similar language to what Paul said. That you remember, remember, if you keep circumcision, you have to obey the whole law. And we can't obey the whole law. What Paul says is to obey the whole law is to show love to your neighbor. To be empowered by the Holy Spirit. To have the gospel that creates love in us for others. That is the fulfilling of the law. You see, the freedom that we have in the gospel cannot be exercised in independence. I've said it before and I will say it again. There can be no Lone Ranger Christians. We show that we are Christians by how we relate to one another. Freedom is found, Paul says, in service to others. He says, through love, serve one another. You see, the end of the spirit of the law is love. This is something that the Bible says over and over again. It's an Old Testament concept. Paul's quoting Leviticus 19 here. It's something that our, law, our Lord taught. It's the second great commandment in Mark 12. And Paul discusses this in Romans 13, where he lists out the Ten Commandments. You may recall he says, don't steal, don't lie, don't commit adultery. And then he says, for love is the fulfilling of the law. You see, that's what it is. Because you see, if we would show our truth, that we are not being hindered in the truth, and that we are obeying the truth of the gospel, we must show love. You see, churches today, our church faces these kind of attacks. There are enemies from without, and there are enemies within. Our own sin, left unchecked, would be enough to detonate this church. That is why we must depend on the Lord God, because we can't deal with our own sin. Only the Lord can only by a powerful work of the Holy Spirit. You see, the very fact that we have any ministry here is testimony to the powerful work of the Holy Spirit in our midst. This is the work of a church and ministry. Paul illustrates something else for us here today. He illustrates, in conclusion, the importance of right thinking, of confession, of thinking together kind of like we did with the Apostles' Creed. Confessing the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. But you see, there's more than that. Paul illustrates the importance of communion, of the Lord's table. You see, we are brought together not just to know, but to love. And so this morning we have had the opportunity to confess together the truth of God's word, to agree with the Lord's word, to add our amen. And 
Shortly, we will have an opportunity to show our bond together and our love with one another by coming around the Lord's table. This is what the Lord wants for the church in Galatia. And this is what the Lord wants for our church here in Katy, that we might be empowered by the Holy Spirit to resist the enemy from without, who would seek to trouble us, but also to resist the enemy within, who would seek to trouble us, to tell us that we can do whatever we want to do, that God's law is not important, that what we want is more important than what anyone else in the church wants, and if we have to fight to get it, we'll get it. You see, the antidote is love and the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have granted to us this text, that we might see your Holy Spirit and his work in our church. We ask that you would bless us now. In Jesus' name, amen.